Blog Talk Radio. talking about coming out, um, parenting the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender teen. And, um, you know, as many of you have heard me say that special needs is not a term that I particularly embrace. And, you know, I know it's ironic. Um, You know, I see the issues our kids face as special differences, uh, which cause challenges. And, you know, I feel it's our job to help them overcome by empowering themselves, uh, empowering ourselves with knowledge. And, you know, you can call it what you like, but these kids and teens face adversity in many shapes and forms. And in my opinion, the invisible disabilities are probably the hardest to deal with for many reasons. So, you know, you may be wondering, you know, why is Marianne doing a show on gay and lesbian kids and teens? And it's because they are not only special in their differences, um, but, you know, they, they have a lot to accept in their lives. Um, you know, they're more likely to develop mental health problems and to be targets of bullying and bias and prejudice, and their needs are really special. And, um, you know, I find that the stigma, um, you know, in some cases even embarrassment by parents and family members and teachers can really foster this turmoil that these gay and lesbian teens face. And, you know, I've seen it both ways. I've seen a, a boy who very early on displayed feminine tendencies, and his family uh, repeatedly told him that this was from bad parenting and it was a disgrace to a family and they gave him no out. And um, I've had another family that embraced their son for who he was and told him from day one he was loved no matter who he was. And uh, the siblings were taught the acceptance and it gave him the freedom to really be who he is. And today, 20 years later, the difference in these two now young men is undeniable. It's immeasurable. So um, next week we celebrate National Coming Out Day and I am honored truly honored to have Dr. Stuart Adelson of Columbia Psychiatry. He is the author of Practice Parameters for Gay and Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Children and Teens, which appears in the American Academy of Child Adolescent Psychiatry. Um, I've been posting it. Please feel free to read it. It's brilliant. And um, he is also an adult child adolescent psychiatrist. He is the chair of the advisory committee of the Initiative for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Health in the Division of Gender, which is a new department um, at Columbia um, Psychiatry. So welcome, Dr. Stuart Edelson. How are you? Marion, thank you. I'm fine, and thank you for that incredibly warm introduction. Actually, it's I who am honored to be on the show. I'm a great fan, and I'm thrilled to be talking to you today. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled you're here, and you know you know how I feel about Columbia Psychiatry. You guys <laughs> are the best. Um, you know, let's really just kick this off, because we have a lot to go through. First, I really want to talk to you um, about um, how parents can deal with this, because I think it's a confusing thing. I think that a lot of people were grown up um, that were raised really with, it, with not being able to accept or understand it. And then I want to go into really go into how we can prevent the bullying and the horrific behavior um, that, that's going on in our schools today. So my first question would be to you. Um, 
Do you think that being gay is a choice? Well, no. If you're talking about who one is attracted to and what a person's true feelings are, I think most people would say that that's usually not a matter of choice. You know, if you were to ask any person, I'm not just talking about a gay person, but a straight person, when they were a kid, the first time that they experienced a crush, I think most people would agree that they didn't choose who to have a crush on, they just felt their feelings. You know, you don't get to pick who Cupid shoots their arrow at. And um, scientists who've looked at this um, have shown that there really is a strong biological influence, it seems, on uh, who people feel their affection for. I'll give you an example. One kind of study has looked at the the genetics of this and the contribution of our genes to our sexual orientation. And one very clever kind of study looks at twins and compares the two kinds of twins. Of course, there are identical twins and then there are fraternal twins. And the identical twins have the same genes by definition, whereas fraternal twins are just like any other brother or sister. And when you compare these two groups of twins, if you look at a fraternal twin who happens to be gay, and you ask, what's the likelihood that their sibling is going to be gay? It's only 15%, which is the same as any other sibling. But if it's an identical twin, that number jumps from 15 or 1-5 up to 50% or 5-0. That's both with yeah. boys and girls. And that you know, is really a nice way to show, because with these twins, everything else is the same, that there's a strong biological influence, you know? Right. I, I, I'll just say, if, if I can, that the reason I think people sometimes get, may get confused about this is because when they talk about sexual orientation, sometimes people are using the same word to talk about different things and they're having different conversations. Sometimes they're talking about a person's feelings, and that's one thing, but sometimes they're talking about a person's actual sexual behavior you know, who is their partner or their identity? What do they call themselves? What do they reveal themselves to others? And, of course, what a person does and what they call themselves, that is a matter of choice. But if you're talking about feelings, no. Right. And I think that that's one of the traps that parents um, are falling into, um, you know, that there's the blame game. You know, what did I do wrong or, you know, what type of, you know, traumatic events could have happened? You know, mm -hmm. like it's such a terrible thing. And, you know, it, it, it just... It doesn't help the problem. It you know it, it creates more of a problem. Right. Um, you know we often see children from a very young age exhibit um, tendencies of the opposite sex, and um, you know parents are confused as to how to handle it. So, you know what is the best way for a parent to parent a child like this? You know let's say there's a little boy who likes to wear makeup or a little girl who likes to wear boys' underwear. Um, you know what would you say to a parent? Well, that's one of the really interesting things about the development of sexual orientation in kids. You know, if you talk to gay people about um, their experience, one of the commonest things is they'll talk about having felt different from the time that they were very young. And if you delve into it, this difference isn't necessarily so much about who they were attracted to, although it sometimes has to do with that, but often it has nothing to do with sexual or romantic feelings per se. What it actually has to do with is their patterns of play and what uh, people call gender-related behavior. By that I mean that 
very typically, if you look at the average boy or the average girl, there are differences in childhood in terms of how motorically active they are. Usually boys are more active. The kinds of games they like, usually boys prefer rough and tumble games. Girls tend not so much. The toys they choose. And a lot of these things, of course, come from culture, but it seems to be consistent. If you talk to people who are growing up gay, however, often they displayed something called gender nonconforming behavior. This is a little less common for the girls who can be more variable, a little more consistently for the boys. But, for example, a typical scenario would be that um, someone, a kid who is growing up gay um, may not be as interested in being on the football team as all of his peers and can feel different from the others for that reason. And so these differences are true, and I would say that we consider them to represent a normal variation of children's play interests. And I think it's very important for parents to um, understand that this is just a normal variation, to love their child unconditionally and, and support their preferences. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to grow up gay or one thing or the other, but, and you're not going to see until time unfolds. But right. But every child needs support as they're discovering that. Right, and you know, you know, I, I hate to generalize, but um, you know, as you were saying that, you know, they may not want to play football, but you know, in actuality, there are a lot of gay men that are very active in sports and were as boys. Um, you know, and I noticed that. Um, from, I'm just saying from the, the boys that I know that are, you know, that now are gay, um, that they did tend to more hang out with the girls um, as friends, and vice versa. Um, but, you know, it, it really is just uh, what I'm really going to try to get to is how does a parent help a child um, who may not even realize <clears throat> that um, they're, they're different? And, you know, it's funny that you said that about being different because within the special needs community, the kids with, let's say, Asperger's or anxiety disorders or different things, they knew when they were in preschool. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my daughter told me when she was four years old and she came home from the first day of preschool, she said, Mommy, why am I different from all the other kids? Right. And right. we said, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, and she was. But, um, you know, can you give us some suggestions for parents to open the conversation to give um, their child a safe environment to come out? Uh, what should the conversation, if any, in the house be? Absolutely. And I'll just say that you've made a very important point because nothing is 100%. You know, we're talking, you know, generally and in, in, in terms of statistics. So you never know in which direction a child is developing. But I would say that um, in general, um, it's important for children to know that whatever else they have, that they have their parents' unconditional love. Children need that just as much as they need, you know, good nourishment, a safe place to stay, and a good education. And that they're brought up in an atmosphere, really, where from day one, you convey to a child the understanding that if there's something on their mind, that they can talk about it. And then you let the child take the lead. You never know what's going to happen that day in school. You know, you brought up the example with your daughter. You never know. Children, their peers are very important, and they may, make, they may notice something or uh, make a comparison that makes them feel different. And I would say that it's, it's good for parents to 
create that atmosphere in the family where there are open lines of communication and not necessarily force a discussion, but just be ready for it when they sense that there's something on a child's mind. And I think, you know, it's also very innate. Um, you know, um, as far as my daughter, I mean, it wasn't like anything said anything to her. She just realized very early on that she had no interest in playing with the other children. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but you know, I think parents need to overcome the stigma. I mean, let's face it. Um, Twenty years ago, um, you know, homosexuality was not accepted the way it is now, and a lot of parents first have to um, get a handle on themselves. So, you know, if you have a, a teen or a child um, who is reluctant to address their sexuality, you know, should a parent? Um, do you think a parent should straight out ask, or should they wait for the teen to come to them? Um, you know, how would a parent approach this? That's a great question. And, you know, you're quite right. Not only was were these differences in sexual orientation not accepted, they were considered a mental illness until 1973. Yeah. And that was revised because people who looked at that realized there's just no basis to really say that. So we think of these as just normal variations. In terms of your question, um, you know, how would you bring it up? I think that the principle of letting the child take the lead is a very good one to keep in mind. You know, the the even though these differences um, are not illnesses and they're part of the the range of of, of human sexual development that that teenagers can experience, um, they can be very stigmatized, as you say. And even though that may be decreasing in certain segments of society. Kids still pick up on it, and it means a lot to them. And they need to be emotionally ready to deal with that. You know, there's a certain emotional skill that um, any child needs to deal with um, uh, who they are um, or doing the right thing when somebody doesn't necessarily approve of it. And that takes time to grow and development uh, and develop as an emotional capacity in a child. And that's why it sometimes um, takes kids a while to be ready to talk about these things, to, to talk about feeling different. And so you want to give the child uh, the ability to control that process. Now, you have right. to use good judgment if you see that your child is beginning to act out or do something unsafe, if you sense that your child is depressed or, you know, heaven forbid, suicidal or is getting into drugs or, you know, sleeping around in a way that may be dangerous, then you may need to say, hey, you know, there's something we need to talk about. Um, but, but barring that, short of that, I think it's best just to um, let them take the lead. And it's sort of like dancing. Right, right. And, you know, I, I think, you know, as you said, I mean, back then it was considered a mental illness. And I think, you know, we've had Dr. Alan Francis uh, has been my guest numerous times, and I think we have him to thank uh, for taking that out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so now you were saying that, you know, if, unless there are red flags, you should really just let the process unfold and let these kids come to grips with it themselves. But, um, you know, how does a parent suggest therapy without suggesting there is something broken about a child or a teen or make them feel that they need to be fixed if they see that their teen is struggling with their sexuality or if they're being bullied? Yeah, that's it's a great... It's got to be a tough thing to approach, you know? Absolutely. That's a great question. And, and you know, while giving the kids 
lead. I, I would say in general, you know, in healthy families and all families, I would hope that there's an atmosphere where either at the dinner table or maybe at, at before bedtime, you know, kids are able to talk within their families um, and to those who love them about what's going on in their lives, about what happened that day in school, and, you know, with the thought that eventually this will emerge. Regarding, uh, you know, therapy and how to get kids to talk about a mental health issue, if that's there, I think it's very important to make the distinction and to be clear that um, the mental health problems that um, gay and lesbian kids who may be uh, subject to, like the increased risk of depression or maybe suicidal thoughts, those problems are problems that um, are, are worth talking about. It doesn't mean that the sexual orientation per se is the problem. The way that they're feeling may be a reaction to stigma or to bullying or some other problem uh, issue that's going on. And so I think parents can say to their kids, if they, if they want to suggest that kind of support going to therapy, that they can say, look, this is to help you. Uh, this seems to be getting you down. And um, I don't think it's necessary for you to, to feel so sad about it. There may be another way to see it. Or sometimes it's useful to have a private place that's for you to kind of talk things through. And I would put it on those terms so that you don't um, stigmatize the sexual orientation per se. Right, right. And, and you know, and I think it's important that, um, you know, if a home has the type of environment um, where when issues come up or, um, you know, a child has something on their mind that they, they've always been free to come to the parent without judgment or, I mean, you know, I'm an anxious person myself. Uh, you know, my kids know that they can come to me and I'm not going to overreact. And, um, you know, I think it's it's just really important to set the tone in the house that a, a child feels they can come to you. And um, I'm going to go on a little bit later. I want to talk to you about the different mental health issues. And I'm going to ask you about situational and organic, um, you know, problems that these kids face. Sure. But, you know, coming out uh, uh, must be a very difficult process. So, you know, just how difficult is it for a teen to come out? And when I say come out, I mean just, you know, just be open to family, friends, or whoever they choose to be open to. Um, you know, what type of issues do they face in this? Yes, coming out is usually a very, very significant step in the life of any young person who's growing up LGBT. Um, and it may be something that they anticipate with dread, perhaps for years, and the reason is that, you know, as kids particularly get to the teenage years, they develop a sense of their identity and who they are in the world. And there are certain yearnings that um, almost all kids feel at this time. And it's, um, on the one hand, a desire to be honest and to be authentic, and on the other hand, to be affirmed and to be accepted and supported by a family, a group of peers, and a community. You know, kids who are growing up straight just can take for granted that whatever romantic or sexual feelings, whatever crushes they have, will be taken as natural and normal by society at large. For kids growing up as a sexual minority, this is very different. They can't take that for granted. And so revealing that and how you reveal it as you discover it is a unique aspect 
of growing up gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender. And, um, and it's a particular challenge that takes certain emotional strength in the child. And um, so that's why it's so important and why it takes time for each kid to figure out in the community they live in, in the school that they go to, in the family that they live in, how can I say this to people and what are their reactions going to be? That takes time and, and maturity. Right. And as you said, I mean, demographically, it does make a difference. I mean, let's face it. Um, you know, not not all areas are, the, are as accepting. Um, you know, we're here in New York where uh, I think uh, the kids would probably have it easier. That's very true. I, that's very true. I think, um, you know, the, the um, social environment um, in which uh, kids are growing up with these feelings uh, can be very, very different depending upon whether it's rural or urban or, or or which part of the country you're in, that's quite true. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I mean, and my um, school district here, um, they have zero, and I mean zero, tolerance for bullying, um, you know, gay teens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes a huge difference. It really does. But, you know, I, I have to always think how, I mean, it's got to be a confusing time because, I mean, these aren't sexual people. These are kids. You know, essentially, they have no experience with sex. So, you know, how, let's say that there's a teen who is confused about whether or not they actually are gay. Um, You know, how would you suggest a parent help them get through that? Because, you know, it's got to be a confusing time. I mean, we pretty much spoke about the point where they know that they're gay. But how, how about the kid that's confused? That's a great question, and it's very true. And it's can be confusing for a while. It's not always clear. It's not always clear to the family and those who, who care about the kid, and it's not always clear to the kid. And I think um, a key point there is that's okay. It's got to be okay that you don't have to necessarily answer the question right now, that um, sometimes you have to live a little and um, get a sense of how you feel, get a sense of who you're attracted to, how long-lasting is this, you know, maybe you, you thought you were feeling something and you're not sure. And you don't necessarily have to answer it right now. You know, some kids might feel that there's this burning intensity, like they must know right the second, or, or families may have anxiety about this. Mm-hmm. And I think that the important thing is just for everybody to take a breath, take a step back, and say, look, the important thing is that for any child, I'm not just talking about sexual minority kids, that kids grow up happy and healthy and achieving their full potential as people um, in their emotional development, in their um, intellectual development. And as you go through that and enjoy life and you have experiences, it'll become clear over time. And if it's upsetting you or if you're getting bummed out about it, come and talk to somebody about it. Right. And you know, I think that really if you say if you if you take the homosexuality aside, I mean every wish a parent has is for their kid to be a good person and to have a person a good person love them. And this is no different. Really, that's what it comes down to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the same whether you're gay, straight, bisexual, transgender. It doesn't matter. And I think this is a very I'm I'm so glad you made that point. I think it's a very important point for people who, um, you know, uh, they may have these concerns. Parents 
um, you know, loving parents may have concerns. What's this going to mean for my child's life? Um, you know, are they going to be the target of prejudice, for one thing? And also, um, you know, are they going to have the happy and fulfilled life that they can? And I think it's very important for people to realize that um, members of sexual minorities can have the same rich, fulfilling, wonderful, meaningful lives with deep relationships that everybody else can. And um, and whatever developmental path you're on, you just want to support that and give that message. Right. And I think also a lot of parents, and I mean, I think that if they were being honest with themselves, um, worry about themselves. They worry about, you know, what is the family going to think of Thanksgiving? And, um, you know, it, it's just, it's such a shame. And, you know, I, I'm going to make an analogy, um, which I guess it's not really that great of an analogy, but let's just say families that have children with autism. Right. Um, that may have family members who just don't get it. Right. You know, make that kid behave. You know, make them stop flapping their hands. Um, you know, and they've learned to pick and choose to advocate for their child. And it's it's really, in my opinion, not very different. Um, parents really have to stand by and advocate for the kids. And I know one of the big problems is bisexuality because, you know, people say, you know, geez, Louise, just pick one. You know, right. um, you know, it's just an oversexed kid that has, is making an excuse to have sex with anyone and everyone they want. And, you know, that's not what it is. So can you explain bisexuality? Sure. And also, if I may just say that, you know, the other point you made is so great about families. You know, Marianne, I've seen kids, for example, who've, who've wrestled with whether to come out for years and years and years. And then one day they do, and they tell their parents, and then... Two days later, when their parents are still working it through, the kids are upset, like, what's wrong with you? Get with the program. And they don't realize, hey, it took you a while to absorb this yeah. and work it through, and your family does too. And they may need to, you know, uh, figure out a way to stand up for you and stand with you. Um, but to get to the second part of your question about bisexuality, that's a very interesting topic, and I would say that we need to learn more about it. And I think if you look at people um, who are bisexual, you may actually have a mixture in there. Um, you know, um, there was a, a, a person named Alfred Kinsey who about 50 years ago did a study of the reality of sexual behavior in the country. And he developed something called the Kinsey Scale. Before him, people used to think you were one thing or the other. You were either gay or straight. You know, you were a sheep or a goat. And he put together this scale that showed that, no, a lot of people fall somewhere on a spectrum, actually. And most people, it's true, are towards one end or the other, and that will be their identity. But some people fall in between. And, you know, you asked, is this just an excuse to have sex? I think it's important, first of all, to make a distinction between bisexuality and promiscuity, which is a very different thing. And it, you know, I think there are people who are bisexual who will tell you, no, they want to have a stable, you know, relationship and not necessarily, uh, you know, be sleeping with everybody, uh, but they just happen to feel attracted to both sexes. So then you also have people who are struggling with their uh, sexual orientation, and they may feel a lot of shame revealing a gay orientation, and they may be more comfortable or feel how, somehow that it's more acceptable to use that term, and it's really a developmental stage. So I think that, you know, as a group, you've probably got a mixture in there. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And, you know, and I think that that's, you know, it's fair. And it's 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 probably even got to be harder on the kids when they're bisexual. I mean, I'm just assuming. I don't know. It's just because they're really just trying to find themselves. But, you know, as you said before, which is a really good point, um, which is that, you know, these kids have to give the parents a little bit of a break, too. Um, you know, one of the things that I always say on the show, it's one of our mottos on the website, is, you know, accepting the problem is one thing. Accepting the life it will bring is something completely different and much more difficult. And, you know, that, that's got to be true for this as well. Well, you know, that certainly can be a fear. And I think any parent who loves their child wants to make sure that they're happy. And, you know, if right. you're the kind of parent who who tends to worry about that, your your mind will, you know, create scenarios where you'll, you'll think about this. I think one of the um, uh, uh, awful things about how stigmatized being gay has been in society for such a long time is that um, there in the older generations, there are not as many positive role models around for kids to look to and for families to point to to see what a, a, a normal, happy, healthy, you know, gay life can be. Right. Um, there are some wonderful um, projects you may have heard of, the It Gets Better project on the Internet, mm-hmm. where people are trying to get the message out there for kids that, hey, hang on, don't be afraid, it's not all you know, it's not all, you know, doom and gloom at, by right. any means. Well, um, Modern Family is a great example, too. You, you know, and I think that more, as there's less and less stigma and there's more and mm-hmm. more visibility, there's more and more availability for positive role models, not only for kids, but also for families. And to see, you know, this is all just part of the, the spectrum of mm-hmm. um, of happy, healthy human behavior. Or can be. And, you know, it, 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 as with all parenting, you know, the, there's no shame in a parent needing some support either. There's no shame in saying, you know, I really need to sit down and talk to somebody to, you know, straighten this out in my own head. So, you know, that's something else that parents have to consider, too, that anything that's a challenge, sometimes you need a little support with, you know. I think that's um, I want very to move true. On, mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to move on to the transgender and transsexuals. Sure. Because there's a difference between transgender and transsexual, I believe, um, and can you explain what that is and why, um, you know, some of these teens really have a need to change physically? Because a lot of homosexuals don't want to change physically, but then there are those that do. Right. I'm very glad you asked because I think that's very um, helpful to understand. And there can be confusion about some of these differences. Um, you know, there's a, a, a difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. Sexual orientation has to do with who you're attracted to. Gender identity has to do with whether you identify yourself as male or female. Um, Most people who are gay um, have a gender identity which is the same as uh, their assigned sex at birth. And, you know, they don't have any question. They may be, you know, a a gay male might be attracted to other males but has no doubt whatsoever you know that he himself is is male um and that seems to be the the uh, by and large uh the you know the the majority of of cases and that's true even when i i spoke earlier about you know maybe having some certain 
uh, gender non-conforming behaviors in terms of play, like maybe not as being mu- as much into rough and tumble sports, or maybe not being as aggressive uh, uh, as other as other boys. That's one thing, but. Gender identity is something else, and for a small number of individuals, it turns out that their identity of what their gender is is different from the uh, what their anatomical sex appears to be and the gender that everybody else thinks they are. And sometimes um, this, can, this phenomenon can um, emerge in childhood, and sometimes it emerges later on in adolescence or even adulthood. And sometimes it takes people by by great surprise. Um, and, you know, so this is a different matter than sexual orientation. It does turn out that when uh, a you do have a child whose gender identity is different um, from their, uh, you know, from their birth sex, um, that as they grow up, those kids... Uh, that gender discordance, we call it, or a gender dysphoria, that tends to go away over time in children, and they also tend to, to join as they develop the population of, of, of uh, gay adults. Um, so it's a, it's a separate but related group. And, um, uh, you know, to answer your, your question about transsexuals, in, in, if it arises later, sometimes that gender discordance and the gender dysphoria does persist, and then those individuals may choose strategies like sex reassignment um, in order to feel uh, uh, more comfortable. Um, and you, know, you, you, you always you know, read about it. You see these people that are married, they have children, and later in life they really come to the point where they realize um, that, you know, the demons within them that have really been tearing them apart all these years is just this. Yes, that's quite true. And studies have shown that, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that when people talk about homosexuality, sometimes you're talking about what people feel, you know, what they're what mm-hmm. their private longings are. Sometimes it's you're talking about their behavior and sometimes their identity. When a person is well integrated, all those three things line up. You know, they they behave in accordance with their feelings and they, they know who they are and they say who they are. It turns out that if you look across the country, that happens in a minority of cases about three-quarters of the time um, people who report having gay feelings or gay behavior actually don't uh, identify as gay or they don't want to think of themselves as gay. And that's consistent with what you described, that many people struggle um, with um, uh, with these feelings. And it's probably you know, largely related to the shame and the stigma that you mm-hmm. mentioned, and that's why it can affect the mental health uh, of of, of mm-hmm. kids who are experiencing these things. Well, that's where I'm headed um, now. You know, and, and I just want to say that we've both, we've basically spoken in the terms of the male, of the boys, and it, the, everything that we've spoken about also goes for the girls. Um, so, you know, parents have to be aware of that with, you know, lesbian daughters. But in your... Um, Excellent writing, uh, Practice Perimeters for Teens with um, Gay Lesbian. It's excellent, and I've been posting it. I hope uh, not only parents read it, but um, clinicians read it. Um, you know, you you state in there that these kids are much more likely to develop mental health issues. So mm-hmm. I would ask you then, um, what type of issues mostly do you see? 
Mm-hmm. And um, how do you decipher whether these are organic uh, mental illnesses or situational, and do they really make it? Does it really make a difference? Right. Okay. Three great questions. Um, so I would, you know, just say that um, the vast majority of um, gay and lesbian individuals um, are mentally healthy, and despite the pressures of stigma and bias and all of those things, they wind up not developing any mental illnesses. Um, and this is a was a new finding that was quite surprising to people at one point in time, and it's part of why it was no longer defined as a mental illness. So most gay and lesbian uh, people are resilient. But if you look as a population and you compare them to the general population, it is true that statistically they are at slightly elevated risk for having certain mental health problems. And studies seem to show that this is largely attributable to that bias and stigma, things like social prejudice and family rejection. And those problems um, include um, an increased risk for depression, an increased risk for anxiety disorders, an increased risk for suicidal thoughts or attempts. In a certain uh, subgroup, it can include an increased risk for substance abuse, and in certain groups, it can include increased risk for high-risk behaviors, by which I mean things like truancy, running away, uh, uh, homelessness, um, and, and, and problems like that. In terms of your question, you know, how much of this is organic? I think that was how you put it. Yeah. Um, there, in, the concept is that in psychiatric illness, in mental illness, there's usually an organic component which puts a person at risk. You know, everybody gets a certain set of genes that they're dealt at birth, like a hand of cards. And partly that and partly early life experiences you have and other environmental things, they come together in a way that can either put a person at relatively greater or less risk to develop one problem or another. And for person A, it may be that they're at risk for depression. For, you know, for, for person mm-hmm. B, it may be anxiety. For person C, substance abuse. Then when stress comes along, if they have that vulnerability, the stress that they meet in life may elicit that problem. So, you know, the, the kids who are growing up gay or lesbian may have the same general risk of developing these problems like depression or suicidality. And then when that risk meets the increased levels of family rejection and bullying and problems like that, that probably uh, uh, accounts for the higher rates that you do see of many of these problems. Right. And the bullying, which we're going to go into next. But something just came into my head. I actually wasn't even going to ask you this, but... um would body dysmorphia or body image problems be um, more prevalent in this population than others, or it doesn't? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. There's preliminary evidence from a couple of studies that with males growing up gay that there may be um, a slightly increased rate of um, eating disorders, which mm-hmm. entail a certain degree of body image problem, and that's an area that needs more study. Right. 
Well, let's move on to the bullying because, you know, bullying among uh, gay, lesbian teens is horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you just take a little time and, you know, tell us how you think it starts, um, you know, why it exists, and, mm-hmm. you know, how not only parents but educators um, and those in churches, um, how do they stop it? Well, I'm so glad you asked this question because... You know, the last 10 or 15 years, I would say, have seen such a wonderful movement um, across this country and really around the world in fighting bullying. There's been a tremendous amount that we've learned about this problem, which is so important because it it can be very widespread and it has very serious and long-lasting consequences. And the studies have shed a lot of light um, on when, why, and how bullying happens. And it's true that the kids who are growing up gay or gender nonconforming are at, are at great risk. And, as you said, adults, including parents and schools and churches and communities, can very powerfully stop bullying by just following a few simple guidelines. You know, it seems to arise around middle childhood. You know, One of the wonderful things about watching children grow and as their brains develop and unfold, they develop all these new capacities and you see them doing new things. And one of the things that happens in middle childhood is kids come to be able to learn certain rules of logic and those include social rules. And there's a shift at that age from being just attached to your family to your peers. And kids at that age tend to like to play and explore and experiment with the rules of social behavior. And you can get the formation of things like groups, peer groups that can have cliques and you can have insiders and outsiders and rules of inclusion and exclusion and so on and who's on top and Mm -hmm. who's popular and why. In certain vulnerable groups that can take on an aggressive quality and you can get bullying, but not always. And it seems to follow adult cues very closely. But that's the situation in which if there's going to be homophobia, um, you can get bullying of those kids. And I think also they also face the case um, where um, a peer may be accepting, but maybe their parents aren't. Oh, yes, this is true. Now, kids live in, in... several different worlds, and you may find the scenario you said or you may find the mirror image of it where at home they're accepted, but maybe at school they're not. And um, uh, so, you know, family rejection is a very, very important issue, and it stands right next to uh, uh, peer harassment and bullying. And I think both of those are very, very important problems to address. And, you know, parents cannot... Um, dismiss the bullying. Um, you know, I think a lot of parents, you know, it, it's very hard to know when to step in and when to step back. Um, you know, you don't always want to be out there fighting your kids' battles, but, you know, sometimes it comes to a point that you do. And, um, you know, if you hear those words, I, I can't live like this, I want to kill myself, uh, you have to take action. So how would you recommend a parent take action, let's say, against a school? Sure. Well, We've learned a tremendous amount about what parents can do um, and what schools can do um, to fight bullying. And it seems that um, there's a powerful effect at fighting bullying when adults working together, and I'm talking about 
parents, working with schools, and working with communities, when they come together and they give a message to kids that it's not necessary and it's not acceptable to be aggressive and to be a bully in order to be popular or to be a socially powerful person. Mm-hmm. And what you know, there are a couple of websites that that folks can go to that have information on programs for parents who are interested. Um, but it's become pretty much recognized that part of what schools need to do is incorporate these anti-bullying messages into their programs and have a multi-tiered approach that involves giving a general message that this is not part of our school environment, that we have a Mm -hmm. positive environment that doesn't tolerate it, that gives the social skills to kids to not need it, and that identifies the kids who are at risk, and, um, and then follows up. By, by giving messages to these kids to shape their behavior in a positive way. And if parents feel that this is not happening in their community, there are tons of resources to do that. El- the, specifically, the gay and lesbian community and the transgender community, unfortunately, have been, to a certain degree, I would say, stepchildren within this movement. Um, right. You know, studies oh, have shown... Yes, a lot the the rates of being bullied are much much higher unfortunately for that group. And when they do implement these plans, very often um kids will report that when a teacher will absolutely not tolerate for example a racist remark in school, they'll turn a blind eye to a homophobic comment. And right. kids notice that difference and they pick up on it and the adult attitude that it conveys and and that's a very powerful thing, which, if not addressed, will actually make the bullying worse. So it's right. very, very important to include sexual orientation in these anti-bullying programs and, and agendas. And in everyday living. You know, I think that that sometimes, I mean, obviously the programs are fabulous, but in everyday life, um, you know, in our district we have many gay teachers that are openly gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are role models. Mm-hmm. Um, they give these kids comfort. Um, you know, in our district, they celebrate uh, Gay Pride Day. They mm-hmm. have pins and buttons they can wear. Mm-hmm. It's not um, anything taboo, um, you know, here, and it makes a difference um, for these kids. And I'm not saying these kids have it, you know, easy. I'm sure there's always the bully, and, you know, we better take a better look at the bully because usually they're the ones that have these uh, self-esteem problems. But, um you know, I thank you so much for joining me. I, I really hope that parents listen to this, um, not only if – um, you yourself are um, raising a, a gay child, um, but just so that you can better understand, um, you know, the diversity in the world and be much more accepting. So, um, Dr. Adelson, can you give me um, your website and also um, some websites that parents can go to? Sure. I mean, there are a few websites that are, are wonderful. There's one called www.stopbullying.gov. Stop Bullying is all one word, and there's wonderful information there. Also, the Centers Centers for Disease Control at www.cdc.gov, if you're particularly interested in gay and lesbian issues, has an LGBT health page with youth resources on it. And there's also a wonderful organization called GLSEN. Their website is www.glse.gov. En.org, and that stands for Gay, Lesbian, Straight Educator Network. And they have wonderful information specifically for the LGBT population about, um, 
uh, anti-bullying programs and uh, gay-straight alliances and so on. So those are some very useful websites. Okay, thank you. And, you know, we didn't get a chance um, due to time, but I did want to mention um, speaking to the children um, and teens about safe sex practices. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm assuming that that's going to be found on some of these websites as well. Uh, I believe so, and you're right. Okay. And also our practice parameters that you talked about are available on the website of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and that has that information. And that website is www.ac.org. A-A-C-A-P dot org. Well, I thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my it's a pleasure. Terrific interview. You're going to help so many kids. Well, I hope so, and, and it's really my honor and my pleasure. And, and, you know, outsmarting bullying has been one of my favorite things to do since I was about 10 years old, so it's been a pleasure doing that with you today. Okay. Well, let's hope we do it. All right. <laughs> thank you for joining me. Thank As you. As I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent right here at the Coffee Clutch. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Bye, Marianne. Bye-bye. Yeah.